0: Welcome to the Nature Recovery Podcast. We're going to take a closer look at some of the solutions to counter biodiversity decline, and we'll find out more about the people behind these ideas. Hello, and thank you for downloading the Nature Recovery podcast. I'm your host this week, Team Thomas, and I'm so excited for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, next week we're going to have a guest host, so Joseph Gent is going to be co-presenting with me, and that means hopefully we'll have some new voices joining the podcast if you're getting sick of my voice. Also, the time of recording, spring is in the air, so the natural nature recovery of the seasons is happening daffodils are blooming uh and finally we have some amazing guests lined up first of all patrick greenfield from the guardian who in 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 the sphere of environmental journalism broke the internet with his story about phantom credits and some of the problems with the red plus scheme so enough about me talking on and on about spring let's go over to patrick greenfield So, my guest today is Patrick Greenfield, who is a biodiversity and environment reporter for The Guardian and The Observer, writing about biodiversity loss and the climate crisis. Before The Guardian, he was working as a producer with CNN, and he has a master's degree in international and development economics from Yale University. Patrick was part of The Guardian's COP26 reporting team in Glasgow, and is covering negotiations for biodiversity of COP15, um, and has probably been to all the COPs, but more recently, He, along with a number of other reporters, um, exposed one of the uh, the the biggest sort of scandals in carbon credits uh, around Vera and phantom credits, uh, which we'll talk about a bit more. Okay, so welcome, Patrick. Thank you for having me. No worries. So. Within the centre, we've been looking at the, the phrase nature recovery, obviously with the centre for nature recovery from different perspectives. Um, and every time I ask someone this, they, we get a different answer. So as an environmental journalist, when I talk to you about nature recovery, what does that mean to you?
1: It's a, it's a tough thing to be precise about. But when I'm visiting projects and around the world, I think I'm looking for two things. A reference to the past and a reference to the future. Right? We are going to live through the peak of, of humanity's population probably and, and the impacts that has on the world. And I when we when we think about nature recovery, what I what I want to see or hope to see is I guess conservation of, of what's there and, and what has been with us for, for centuries and and thousands of years in, in some cases. But then also part of that for me I think is is adapting to the massive demands humanity is is, is putting on, on planet Earth and and thinking kind of cleverly, cleverly about how, how we do that, how, I don't know, our demand for food and water and, and use of biodiversity is incorporated with, with, with how we use nature and, and live alongside it, because um, that's key to its, its recovery as well, I think.
0: So your recent work, that was pretty groundbreaking uh, and uh, was publicised um, in The Guardian and in other papers and then all over the internet really exposed that one of the world's leading carbon certifiers, Vera, had about 90% of their rainforest offset credits, not all their credits, their rainforest offset credits based on phantom credits. And essentially, these didn't relate to genuine carbon reductions. Um, now, the carbon market is very complicated. So for those that don't know the details, can you explain the, the real basics of how the carbon market works, uh, and more specifically, the role that certifiers like Vera, what, what the role that they play in it?
1: Sir? Carbon offsetting can get complicated, but but the idea is simple. It's that good can cancel out bad. So when it comes to carbon emissions, when we fly, drive, eat meat, even breathe, right? There are emissions that are related to that. And the idea with carbon offsetting is that you can neutralize that impact, you can cancel out that that impact by paying for uh, a reduction or an avoided emission elsewhere whether that be through a cook stove project tree planting renewable energy in developing uh, countries the very common type very popular type is red plus avoided deforestation um, protecting key ecosystems like the amazon the congo basin rainforest in indonesia and we know about the threats right this is the second largest source of, of carbon emissions in home to a massive amount of the world's biodiversity. These are, these are areas we must protect. And so, in theory, when you I don't know, go on holiday to the south of Spain or whatever it might be, you can make that a carbon neutral holiday under the theory of offsetting by paying for forests in Indonesia or the Amazon that were going to be cut down to be left standing, to keep sucking in carbon from the atmosphere and to keep being those amazing amazing ecosystems.
0: Okay. And then VERA specifically, that kind of certifier, they, they look into the schemes and say, yep, yeah, this, is, this is a genuine carbon reduction uh, effort.
1: Yeah, so they provide integrity. So the market now for uh, voluntary carbon credits is about $2 billion. And VERA is, is responsible for about... Uh, three quarters of, of all carbon credits that that are approved, and they uh, and about forty percent of the ones they approve are red plus um, credits uh, avoided deforestation credits and their job is very simply to say what 's real and what isn 't when it comes to an emission reduction and they host methodologies that are essentially recipes for making carbon credits right? this is a totally unregulated sector, so those claims that you see on the TV, in the supermarket, on the internet of carbon-neutral ice cream, carbon-neutral flying, whatever it might be, that all relies on the strength of various carbon-standard VCS, the rules that they have approved for carbon credits around
0: the world. Okay, and that's great. And we will link to your articles in the show notes because um, I, mean, I could get you to explain it, but the article does it perfectly. And there's some great illustrations there about how you know, areas that they were essentially protecting were never really under, under threat. And you can see where, where the real threat is, is where roads are going through the Amazon. That's where deforestation occurs. So if you, if you take your baseline as, a, as, as somewhere that's never going to be under threat and you say that's going to be protected, well, you know, right next door is the area that you should be protecting and there's, there's nothing happening there, a, a, along with many other things that were happening um, out there. Um,
1: you don't start cutting down a forest from the middle. You start... You start at the edge and you work towards the middle.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I've, I've, I've done um, some forestry studies. And again, you see that the impact on roads all over the country, that's forestry, where there's forestry roads, you know, it's almost like a, a time lapse of watching, um, you know, leaf cutter ants or something. Where, where, the, where the trail hits, that's when the deforestation occurs. So, I mean, when I was learning a bit about forestry in the carbon market um, and doing some environmental ge- um, regeneration projects in East Africa... I don't know if I've got a criminal mind, but I just kept thinking, wow, this would be really, really easy if you wanted to do some fraudulent carbon projects. But (laughs) but it it, it was still a shock to see, you know, this figure of like 90 percent and to see the scale um, at which, you know, poor practice, I'll call it, was going on with with Red Plus. And I guess, you know, what were your feelings? Because you knew a lot more about the carbon market uh, than I did going into this. But going into the investigation... And I guess, how do you feel about some of the things that you witnessed? And I suppose, especially around some of the human rights violations alleged to be linked to the scheme. Um, so that's my first question. And sort of secondly, uh, is it worrying that it, at the moment, from what I can see, is it seems to be down to journalists and independent scientists to kind of police this market because the certification isn't... Well, it may provide integrity. That, that certainly leaves us with many, many doubts as to how... how um, how much integrity there is. So yeah, going into this and then from what you found out, um, did it change the way you feel and and, and what were the things that really stood out for you, what you saw?
1: Let's start with the first question. And I think there are two parts to to that in terms of what we found in our our investigation. I think there's a a technical part, really that question of uh, what deforestation has been avoided and what were the resulting emissions that were stopped from from going into the atmosphere. And the second point of, of the social impact. In terms of um, the, the integrity of the carbon credits, I wasn't really surprised by that because looking at the methodologies, um, I, know, I know a little bit about how you, you kind of measure impacts. We do it all the time in, in other fields. You can get a good estimate of, I don't know, how many lives have been saved by the vaccine or um, what was the impact of, a, of German reunification or we, we do these calculations all the time. Uh, using these statistical methods and and that is rightly or wrongly kind of where, where humanity is kind of got got to on, on, on what, what impact actually is and these methodologies weren't following those standards so I, I, I kind of always thought yeah that there were going to be big problems there um, the social side of this really surprised me so in these studies there were the, 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 the reason why we got to kind of 90% is that there are lots of big schemes that aren't having any impact at all, unfortunately. But there were some um, that, did, that did have a, a small impact. Sometimes actually kind of one or two had, had a big impact. Uh, and we tried to visit those to see what that looked like. What, what is it about these areas, these projects, that was having a, a positive carbon effect for, for all of us? And I went to a, a project in northern Peru, in San Martin province, which was co-run by Conservation International and the Peruvian National Park Service. H- highly reputable organization, one of the biggest conservation NGOs in the world. And what I was really surprised to find was that this project had created enormous problems for local people. Some that I spoke with who, who lived inside were broadly supportive of, of the impact of, of the scheme. Others. Were not. Some people inside the project uh, were having their homes cleared, felt like they were being, being forced from, from where, they, where, where they lived because of, of the carbon in the trees. And something I've, I've learned in, in this job and is very obvious in, in the science. It, it, really, this is, a, this is a human problem. It's people cut down trees and you've got to deal with, with those social issues if you want to do anything on, on deforestation. These are, these are often economic choices about, I know, people who are just trying to get by. These were, these were subsistence farmers that I, I was speaking with. And so I think there you've got an example of credits that do have some carbon integrity, but if you're a major corporation or I know you want to go on holiday and you want to have a carbon neutral flight, do you really want to be paying for people to be encouraged to leave certain areas or have have these have your money linked to to negative effects i'm, I'm not saying that there's kind of intention on, on anybody really involved there apart from a few people obviously but it, it's really it's really complicated and it it left me feeling very uncertain about about the whole system um right i i i appreciate that's sort of quite quite an unclear answer really, but I think it's, this is an unclear situation about about what we do next.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I mean it, it's, it's changed the way I've, you know for, for so long the, the removal of carbon for me has sort of been quite a technical challenge, and so yeah, you just do kind of, but more and more with the people I talk to and then what I learn here is like, well you know if you do that by who owns that forest that is sucking up all the carbon and what does that uh, You know, carbon is a western you know the, the excess carbon is a western problem and now we're solving it by saying to some indigenous people or some locals you can't have access to this forest anymore because we need that to protect the world from the damage that we've done and there's huge ethical implications there and social justice issues that i think um, are complex and there aren't easy answers um i guess on the last part i mean maybe there are other governing bodies but um from what i see you know who polices organizations like vera and again there's no um not trying to suggest that they're you know intentionally there's a corruption there or anything like that that you know that but there was clearly some flaws in their calculation and to me there doesn't need to be another organization checking their homework it's down to journalists and and independent researchers. Is, is that a fair comment from what you know of the carbon market and sort of how it works? Or or is it that kind of neoliberal, the market should regulate itself, right? Is that that's the, the, the idea behind it? I think that's what many people
1: in the carbon market would say. And it's worth noting as well that Vera, or noting that Vera totally dispute the findings of our investigation. Don't think the studies we looked at um, have that much they can, they can learn from, they don't think it's the right way to, to really measure um, the impact of, of, the, of their projects. Um, I think, speaking very broadly about, about the carbon offsetting industry, and that includes, I would include academics as well, who, who work um, and, and I don't know, might help carbon organisations with, with reports, that there are big conflicts of interests everywhere, right? from project developers, to standards, to even sometimes people who, who live inside the communities, there's, a, there's loads of money in this world now, right? It's, it's multi-billion and it's only gonna grow and really it suits everybody sometimes to just ignore the environmental integrity of, of, of these credits um, and, and and just say, yeah, this is, this is having an impact when actually often it's, it's not. And if this is gonna play a role in our climate policy, biodiversity policy, it's got to have environmental integrity. Otherwise, it's nothing. And actually, crucially, makes climate change, biodiversity loss, whatever, worse. Something that's really struck me in terms of the reaction to our investigation is people really believe sometimes that that product is carbon neutral. They really believe, the sincerely believe believe that that advertising. We're surprised. I've got my LinkedIn, I've got messages from ESG officers who, who who were pretty surprised by it by it too, um, and I, I mean it might be that I know other academics who kind of thought, oh god, oh, I never believe that. How do people? Why are people so naive? Well,
0: most people don't have the time to to worry about whether something really is carbon neutral, and you do need it does need to. You're looking at someone that buys his shoes because they plant a tree in the Amazon. It's like they're not actually going out there and planting a tree, are they? Like, And, and the more and more you kind of dig, you find, okay, there's money. There's a money in exchange for services. But um, we all... Um, it's a There's a whole new area of marketing that I think for people that are, are trying to do the right thing is, is very powerful. Um, and I'm not saying these companies are, are sort of disingenuous. But yeah, there is a... Where does that money actually go and what does it do? And... Um, some schemes, you know, I've some schemes I see in my own eyes are, like, really, really great. Other ones are maybe not so flawed. Um, not, not so not so great, sorry. Um, and just getting back to the money, it's a kind of... Um, and, and this, I'm going to ask for your personal opinion here, not for The Guardian or, or, or that, but, you know, you talked about the money. I think I saw a recent uh, calculation as the carb, global carbon market was worth over 900 billion. And I know recently that we are on the tip of the iceberg, that, like, a lot of the there's a lot of carbon projects that are underway, but they haven't started claiming the carbon yet because you need the trees to grow. So there are, you know, there are lots and lots of people investing in this. So there's going to be a staggering amount of money coming through in the carbon market. Um, And whenever you've got carbon offsetting, and when you've got a market, there's always a financial incentive, right, to show that you've you've maximized the reduction of carbon or the sequestration. Um, And I keep thinking with all, with a lot of environment things about Godhart's law, you know, when a measure becomes a target, when you're trying to, target maximum it ceases to be a good measure like are we measuring carbon sequestration or are we maximizing it there are other other schemes i think where people have pointed out that the the the, the measurements aren't um entirely accurate or justified does that make the whole market unstable as a mechanism and keep until it sort of ceases to to do what it said originally but a few people will get rich along the way um and actually it's you know we sort of should abandon it and another view I guess is like well you can you can do both and, and maybe there is a better way I mean I'm a fan of more of like a carbon tax or a pollution tax but that doesn't exist whereas a carbon market does exist so you know other views are saying look the carbon market is still quite new I mean new I think it's well over 20 years now 50, but certainly you know it's it's still new and compared to you know um, exchange markets and so on and it, it has flaws but until we've got a better mechanism, actually, it's one of the best ways currently of getting money into carbon reduction projects like growing new forests, afforestation, clean cookstoves, all of these things that, you know, can do a lot of good. And as long as journalists like yourself and, and other people are looking into it, then in theory, it will begin to regulate over time. And we don't want to scrap these fantastic schemes. So there's the it's totally broken argument and it's going to do harm because we're wasting time by by putting money into things that are of little environmental use and then there's the reform argument which is like it's good um but it needs to get a lot better over time um i sometimes i'm not sure where i am but i guess kind of how where do you sort of how do, when you, when when you look at it personally where do you sort of, what are your feelings about the carbon market and yeah between those sort of two opposing viewpoints i i think
1: my response to that is and I can only really talk about nature, but it's clear to me that conservation is becoming an industry. There are more and more for-profit conservation companies out there now, and there will be more in one, two, three, four, five years' time. And I think, to answer your question, it comes down to what what we really want from this. Offsetting is about causality if we're thinking about that neutralization effect. Carbon in, carbon out, carbon avoided. And if that's what we want to measure, then it doesn't matter if you're trying really hard. It doesn't matter if your scheme has health benefits or uh, biodiversity benefits that can't be measured in carbon or, or anything else like that. It's the carbon, nothing else. Uh, that comes first. And that's, that's tough, that's, that's, that's a really tough system. And also, this system for avoid deforestation relies on threats. You need the threat, otherwise it doesn't work. Let's, let's take what's happened in, in Brazil with the change of, of president recently. By having Bolsonaro in, in charge in Brazil, and the massive destruction of the, of the Amazon that, that we saw there, I'm sure many of those carbon offsetting schemes that were not really very effective before Bolsonaro, overnight became pretty effective. And that again changed with Lula. And there are other governments around the world that have, or countries that have lots of carbon offsetting schemes who have de- um, very high rates of, de- of deforestation and governments don't really care about it or are even actively involved in, in the deforestation. And is that, is that what we want? Is that, is that what we want for a system? That we, that we have to have presidents and, and leaders like that for, for it to work? Or can we do better? I'm sure that in some cases, carbon offsetting will be the right thing to do to, to, to mitigate that threat, right? Where you've got someone who has to choose between chocolate, or well, cocoa, c- 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 sorry, cacao, or pineapple farming, or banana plantations, whatever it might be, and, and leaving the forest standing, and we can make sure actually there's there's more money in keeping the forest standing, sure. But, that system only rewards places where there's a big deforestation threat and misses out countries like Gabon, Costa Rica, there are many others, Guyana, that have not destroyed their forests and have massive carbon sinks, Well, in some cases reverse that deforestation and not gonna get financially compensated for it. So, so really, we need to make sure the offsetting system has integrity, but we probably also need something else that's much bigger I think a financial mechanism that pays countries to keep their trees standing, generous in a, in a generous way for both carbon and biodiversity, is something we need to think harder about. And when we think about the the buyer side of this as well, and by that I mean what companies do and what companies claim with with these credits, we need we need to be I think a bit more um, a bit more careful there too. I, I don't know if you can make your holiday carbon neutral really with, with these kind of kinds of credits. Um, I, I personally would love to be able to do it, right? This idea that, I mean, I'm going to start my lecture with, with something like this, right? Many of us are environmentalists who, who fly and drive and eat meat and, and know we're part of the problem and, and don't want to be and want to do something about it and want to cancel that out. And it would be amazing if you could pay money for that to just go away. Mm. But really we know deep down, many of us, that life's not like that.
0: Yeah. There's some there's some hard truths. There's you know, old growth forests that are two hundred years old, if you cut them down a million cookstoves isn't going to like it doesn't <laughs> there's some really odd equations you get with kind of carbon thing, and I think that's a that's a hard a hard truth but um, I um, think how
1: many cookstoves is a giant sequoil worth
0: yeah, yeah those are those are the the uh, calculations the, the weird things that you sometimes get into um, so in, I mean in terms of that and age recovery and I think I'm interested just because of your your view I mean you probably see uh, some of the tougher sides of, of what's going on in, in nature but are you would you consider yourself an optimist uh, a pessimist or a pragmatist or something else when it comes to humanity's relationship with nature and, and, our, and our prospects for the future I'm a realist about it I'm not, I'm not optimistic or
1: pessimistic I think it's very clear that in my lifetime and um, hopefully my children's lifetime, well, I'm saying I hope I I have children, we'll we'll see some, I and and they will see some pretty scary things. Uh, We will see the earth change massively, um, at the poles and the tropics, uh, the way we feed ourselves, the the way we, I don't know, the way the entire global economy works is, is gonna change and there's gonna be big impacts on that and we'll see Ten million plus humans probably that's, that's going to be quite something to be part of and that will have very negative consequences environmentally for, for the planet and, and because of the way we consume especially in rich countries I, at, at the same time I, I, that doesn't mean that I'm going to kind of give up or I don't, I don't know. It used, to, it used to scare me, but it doesn't really anymore. I, I just kind of hope for the best.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely fair enough. I think, you know, for me, humanity is very good sometimes when there's no other easy option left. And we're, we're rapidly running out of easy options, which is quite daunting. But there's sort of there has to come a point, right, where it's like, well, like you say, it's, it's um, change is inevitable. I think everyone would agree on that. How, what the impacts of that change and how quickly you recover from it—that that is still there's a there's there's a lot still worth fighting for. Um, but yeah, it's a very sobering, um, and I don't think anyone would question your your outlook. Um, so, not quite to end on bleak note. So, if you didn't have to work and you wanted to escape from all of this and talking about. Uh, phantom credits and so on uh where would be the natural environment that you would go where would you hang out where's your where's your space in nature that you would want to
1: to, to live and be
0: to to, i'm giving you i'm giving you a free a free carbon neutral flight to anywhere to go to just hang out for a, a few days and just kind of turn off your laptop or whatever and
1: i really want to go to namibia and i've become quite fascinated recently with aquifers and understand, I understand that the, the desert there and the amazing ecosystem and, I know, the desert lions and the sea lions and the rest of that, that survives on these enormous aquifers that are underneath um, parts of the Namib desert. And I would love to
0: see that for myself. Um, and, it? yeah, that, that would be incredible. Great. Another another fan of deserts. I would like, there's someone, uh, Joseph Bull... Uh, two weeks ago was talking about we don't have enough love for deserts and they're they're full of biodiversity even though we've kind of got the the name is um it's very bleak um anyway patrick thank you so much for your time um and as ever you know if you haven't read uh the the main article but there are numerous follow-up articles please please read it it's really really important Um, and it gives you a great understanding of the carbon market some of the challenges with it um and yeah thank you so much for your for your time and for your work it's really important thanks for having me you've been listening to the nature recovery podcast with me stephen thomas please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you can please consider leaving us a review as it will really help other people to find us also why not consider sharing this episode with someone you know you never know you might get them interested in the wonderful field of nature recovery. If you want to find out more about the activities of the Levy Hume Centre for Nature Recovery, you can find us on Twitter at Nature Recovery, or you can visit our website for more information. That's www.naturerecovery.ox.ac.uk. Thanks so much for listening.